This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The title of, of this talk, as Justin said, is Does Moral Disagreement Entail Moral Relativism? So to get an idea of what moral relativism is, uh, I'm going to begin this talk, and uh, you should have it on your, your sheet. Um, I have a list of two different sets of propositions, or kind of imperatives, I suppose. Uh, the first are, I, I've titled, Some Moral Rules, and the second, Some Immoral Rules. So let me go through the moral rules. Love your neighbor as yourself. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Do not intentionally kill the innocent. Do not take what is not yours without permission. Parents ought to care for their infant children. Shun ignorance and try to live at peace with your neighbors. It is permissible for a city or state to pass post facto laws. One ought not to rape anyone. Some immoral rules. Your guilt or innocence in a criminal trial depends entirely on your race and not on the judge or jury's deliberation on legitimately obtained evidence. Anyone may be convicted of a crime based on the results of a coin toss. The maximum punishment for first-degree murder is an all-expense-paid vacation to Las Vegas. I grew up in Las Vegas. Um, that doesn't mean I didn't murder somebody to get there. That was the punishment. Government contracts are to be distributed based on family connections and bribes and not on the quality of the bids. Original parenthood is to be decided by a special board of experts appointed by the governor and not on whether one sires or begets the child. Now, if you believe that these moral rules or these immoral ones, and perhaps others not mentioned, ought to be obeyed or disobeyed by everyone, regardless of time, place, or circumstance or culture, then you are a moral objectivist. So the opposite of moral relativism is moral objectivism, the view that there is in fact some objective moral goods that people can know or ought to know. Objective meaning in the sense uh, that uh, they don't depend on us uh, as opposed to subjective, it, it, it's kind of difficult here because subjective, uh, obviously, if there were no minds, there'd be no morality. So in a sense, you know, the, the way by which we know morality is through our minds. In that sense, they're subjective. But in another sense, sort of that they, they're objective, like mathematics is objective. So if you think, for example, uh, if you believe that there's such a thing as objective morality, um, you, uh, you believe that morality is more like mathematics than it is like the rules of etiquette. On the other hand, if you think uh, that morality depends exclusively on one's time, place, or culture, that there is no universal objective morality that tr transcends society and circumstance, then you're more relativist. And in that sense, you believe that morality is more like the rules of etiquette than it is like mathematics. So what I want to talk about is the fact is that people disagree on moral questions. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about that. I teach a course at Baylor called Contemporary Moral Problems, and that's all we cover. 
is people disagreeing on moral issues. We begin with the question of relativism, then we move on to the question of there's an objective moral law, does it depend on God, then we talk about abortion, euthanasia, affirmative action, uh, all, everything, and then once in a while I throw in uh, other sorts of issues. So there's no doubt that there's disagreement. So what I, there are two kinds of arguments I wanna go over uh, this afternoon. One, both of which are used to defend moral relativism, and both of them depend on a large part on the correct observation that there is moral diversity. So the first argument, um, so, so what I wanna do is, is, is examine why is it that people are moral relativists and critique it, and then say a little bit at the end about some of the things that Thomas Aquinas talks about in the Summa Theologica in a section called the Treatise on Law, where he does talk about the issue of moral disagreement. And I think it could be quite insightful. So the, I think there are two main reasons why people are moral relativists. One reason uh, I call is that there's just too much, right? I, I, there's just too much moral diversity. There's too much diversity on moral issues both in and across cultures. And I wanna call that argument the argument from disagreement. And the second argument that we'll look at, it's that it's intolerant to believe that one's moral view is universally true and others wrong. I'll call that second argument the argument from tolerance. Both of them depend on the observation of disagreement, but they kind of make slightly different cases. So let's go over the argument uh, from disagreement first. Now, one of the things that, that is important to remember about the Thomistic Institute, the organization that is sponsoring this, it's, it's a Catholic, uh, it's, it's affiliated with the Dominican House of Studies, a, the Order of Catholic Priests and Elders of the Dominicans. And so one of the things about um, uh, the question of relativism also ties into people's general, or at least some people's skepticism about the rationality of religious belief. So uh, religions like Catholicism, Judaism, um, Islam, and also within Christianity, uh, religious uh, believers and religious groups typically deny relativism. And so one impediment that people have to believing in God, or at least entertaining the possibility of religious belief being rational, is the fact that they're relativists. So on the other hand though, if you show somebody that relativism is mistaken and it changed their mind, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to become believers in God. So in a sense, relativism is an impediment if you move that makes it people more open to entertaining the idea that, uh, that, there, that there's a God on which, uh, that grounds objective morality. So the first argument, the argument from disagreement. So disagreement, as I've already noted, is everywhere. Uh, in the US alone, there are an array of questions over which sincere citizens hold contrary views. I've already reeled off some of them. You can think of uh, abortion, marriage, physician-assisted suicide, religious liberty, animal rights. Just name, you can name virtually any issue and you're gonna have people of goodwill disagreeing 
on how to properly understand what the right position is on, on those issues. Uh, some cultures, for example, so that's just not in the United States, you can take it cross-culturally, right? So some cultures practice polygamy and prohibit the eating of cattle, to cite that two examples. Other cultures practice monogamy and open up steak joints, right? Uh, but not only is there disagreement in the present, there's disagreement across space and time. <laughs> so think of all the civilizations throughout history that thought it was perfectly permissible to enslave fellow human beings, torture heretics, or rape and pillage conquered nations. So given the wide diversity of moral opinions and practices across space and time, it's easy to see why someone would be a moral relativist. Uh, it should not surprise us then that two of the most widely read academic defenses of moral relativism um, by social scientist Ruth Benedict and William Graham Sumner appeal to this diversity and make their cases. In fact, I, I edited a textbook uh, called Do the Right Thing, and in the textbook, one of the essays uh, that Publishes from Ruth Benedict. In fact, I use her article, and once in a while I use Sumner's article. Uh, they're both, by the way, anthropologists, and much of their thinking about uh, moral relativism comes from their own experience as anthropologists. They essentially argue that because there is wide disagreement on moral beliefs and practices, there is no universal objective morality, and thus moral relativism is true. Now, I think the, ar the argument from disagreement is in one sense impressive. Um, it has a lot going for it, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious people disagree on moral questions. But I think it's, it's flawed in, in several ways. In fact, I think it is badly flawed, especially if you start thinking more deeply about why people disagree on the issues that they disagree on. So I want to go over now four problems with the argument from disagreement. First, as a matter of simple logic, the fact of moral disagreement does not entail moral relativism, just as the fact of disagreement over the shape of the earth does not entail that the earth has no shape. So simply as a logic, so supposing I were to say, um, um, let's say, um, uh, all bachelors are unmarried, and therefore, Al Gore is a bachelor. Now that's true, right? right? But there's nothing about all bachelors being unmarried that entails that Al Gore is a bachelor. Right? Or if I, it, it, or the mere fact that, uh, people disagree on something doesn't necessarily mean that someone's not right, which is the example of the shape of the earth. So when, when somebody says that the reasons don't entail the conclusion, all they're saying is that the reasons in and of themselves aren't enough to show that the conclusion is followed from the premises. So the first problem is that disagreement doesn't at all um, doesn't at all establish or doesn't entail uh, relativism. Uh, and, and I think down deep, we kind of 
we kind of know that, right? I mean, the idea that someone could be wrong about a moral question doesn't seem at all controversial, right? So if I were to say the Nazis were wrong, or that the elimination of chattel slavery was a good thing, right? Seems so those seems to be those don't seem to be doesn't seem to be crazy to think that people can be wrong. We kind of have an intuitive sense of that. In fact, when we argue about moral issues, what we typically do is bring counterexamples in response to uh, people's initial arguments because those counterexamples carry with them a lot of weight. Second problem. The, in order for the argument from disagreement to work, the moral relativist must assume this proposition. Whenever there is disagreement on any issue, the correct moral position on X, there is no universal objective truth on the matter. So here what, I, what I'm doing is identifying what I think is the, more, the missing premise on the part of the relative. So the relativist brings to your attention disagreement. And then says from that disagreement, you should be a moral relativist. But the assumption made is that whenever somebody Whenever there is disagreement over an issue, therefore, there is no correct answer. But one could, at that point, just simply announce that you disagree with that missing premise. So a couple of years ago, when I was teaching at, um, I taught for seven years at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. After I earned my doctorate, I got hired in my hometown. And I was teaching a course in informal logic. And I had a section of it on missing premises. and I put on a, on a uh, uh, it was a quiz, and really, I thought it was an easy quiz, and the first, the first um, it, was, it was missing premises and missing conclusions. It was a freshman informal logic class, and I had, uh, it says, all, a gentleman opens a door for a lady. And then the second premise was, or, or the conclusion was, Fred did not open the door for my wife. So the missing premise, I thought, was Fred is not a gentleman. One of my students says, your wife is not a lady. Wow. <laughs> Technically, that was actually right <laughs> from, a, from a logical point of view. So my point is that there's all sorts of missing. Most of the time, when we argue about questions, there are, there, we, we sometimes assume, assume certain things. And the moral relativist, or the defender of moral relativism, in the argument of disagreement is assuming this. The problem is that the premise, the missing premise itself can be challenged by simply announcing you disagree with it, right? And of course, if you dis if the premise is whenever people disagree about X, there is no right answer, and you've just announced you're disagreeing with that hidden premise, then isn't that a good reason to reject that premise? It's what's called a self-refuting proposition. So it's like saying my brother's only child, or don't believe anything I say, things like that. So that's the second problem. What's the third problem? The third problem is that disagreement is overrated. So here, what I'm gonna do is just challenge the idea, or let me put it this way. Let, I wanna dig deeper, or that we ought to dig deeper and ask why is it that people disagree? When we, is it really about differing moral principles, or is there something else going on? And so use it in illustration here. 
um, in the debate about abortion. And even, I, I want to focus on not so much the, the popular debate in the sense of the debate about the overturning of Roe v. Wade in Casey versus Planned Parenthood and the way in which people argue on social media about abortion, but how, how do philosophers and bioethicists argue about abortion? So uh, it's true that pro-lifers and pro-choicers disagree on the morality of abortion. I don't think they disagree on the moral principle that it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent persons. What they disagree on is what counts as a person or how we should understand the meaning of innocence. So defenders of abortion typically argue either that the fetus, though genetically a human being, is not morally a person during most, if not all of its gestation. So, so a typical argument to defend abortion rights, there's a whole body of literature that's been built up uh, over the past 50 years or so, and two of the earliest arguments defending abortion rights were authored by Michael Tooley, Professor University of Colorado Boulder, and Marianne Warren, who's now since passed away. She was for years at San Francisco State. And they both agreed with people that are against abortion. They say, you're right. Fetuses are, in fact, genetically human beings. They are members of the species Homo sapiens. But that's not what gives them moral status. What gives them moral status is that they have a collection of attributes and powers that they can exercise. So Warren mentions things like self-consciousness, the ability to reason, the ability to communicate, uh, to have an identity. Uh, those are absent from unborn human beings. In fact, Warren concedes that they're also absent from newborns as well. And so both Thule and her have argued that infanticide is not necessarily wrong for that reason. That's obviously highly controversial. But other philosophers have said, well, that's, that's not what, what gives a, a, a human being or any being moral status is the ability to feel pain. And so uh, they offer a different a decisive moment in fetal development as the place at which moral status uh, is identified. But they're not arguing that it is permissible to intentionally kill human persons. What they're arguing is that the fetus is not a human person. And so ironically, they agree with the pro-lifers. <laughs> they just disagree on what constitutes uh, a human person. Now there are other philosophers who actually concede for the sake of argument that the fetus is a human person and still nevertheless argue that abortion is justified based on a kind of bodily rights argument. So there, they're actually challenging the idea of innocence. What they're saying is that uh, the fetus, even though it is not conscious, it is not willing to be in its mother's womb, uh, if a woman does not consent to it, then therefore, uh, it's trespassing and she can do anything to remove it from her. And this is associated with an argument offered by uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson, who uh, published it in 1971. Thompson was a professor for years at MIT, and she just died about two years ago. And she gives all these different illustrations to make her point. She begins her article by saying, 
uh, imagine that you are uh, you are knocked out by a group of a band of members of the Society of Music Lovers. They've canvassed all the medical records in the world. They've discovered you and you alone have the right blood type to help this ailing violinist who needs to be hooked up for you to you for nine months. And so you you know you, you wake up in the hospital and the doctor says, oh, oh uh, sorry that you're here, but um, all you have to stay is hooked up to this violinist. And uh, if you remove, if you unhook yourself, uh, from the violinist before the nine months he will die. Uh, all violinists are human persons and violinists have a right to life, so therefore you can't unhook yourself. And Thompson's point is, uh, well, um, if you think, uh, if, if you are uh, opposed to abortion, you should be, uh, this counterexample should cause you doubts about, about the, the obligation that women have to carry their children to term if they did not consent to becoming pregnant. Now, so both arguments, both the argument based on personhood and the argument based on bodily rights, understand that it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent persons. But they, what, the, what they argue is that fetuses are either not persons or they're not innocent. Right? Now, I think both arguments are mistaken. I have a book that came out 15 years ago called Defending Life, published by Cambridge University Press, in which I critique both kinds of arguments. Uh, I'm hoping that Cambridge will allow me to make a revised edition. I proposed it about two months ago, right after the uh, Dobbs decision. Uh, but the point is that what you'll notice is that both sides of the abortion debate seem to, I mean, on one level, yes, the disagreements are deep. But if you kind of look at the reasons why people defend the right to abortion, you understand that, oh, they, in a sense, they, they appreciate the power of the principle that it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent persons. And what they're trying to do with these uh, particular arguments is to kind of get around or to show that, in fact, elective abortion doesn't violate the principle. Right? So, uh, so that's, that's a one example of, um, of how disagreement is overrated. Uh, you can apply the same kind of reasoning to other issues as well. If you think of the debates over marriage, physician-assisted suicide, uh, even critical race theory, uh, the differing factions appeal to the exact same moral goods and principles to justify their positions. Fairness, justice, relief of suffering, love, protection of the vulnerable. So all, you find no matter what side people take on these issues, they appeal to the same kinds of kinds of goods. That doesn't take away from the depth of the disagreement, but it does show you that there's a kind of moral vocabulary already in place, even among people that, that disagree. Uh, where they disagree is over the proper application of those goods and principles, and the right way to answer questions about the nature of the reality to which they are being applied. This is why in the Catholic Catechism, I don't know how many of you have ever read the Catechism. Um, I, when I first returned to the Catholic Church, I was, uh, I grew up Catholic and then left when I was 13. Uh, it's, a, it's a great time to leave, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I, I thought I knew more than I, I did. Um, most 13 year olds are like that. So I left, I left, I, I, I left uh, Catholicism and considered myself a kind of Protestant and then returned uh, 
in 2007. And for about five years after I returned to the church, I would read the catechism every year. I'd go through it. And if you haven't done that, you should. It, it's, 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 a, it's, not a, it's not a difficult read, and it sort of reminds me if you're Catholic. If you're not Catholic, it's still a good read. So in the catechism, there's a passage um, that where it says that the church teaches that even though objective morality is known by all, it is, quote, not perceived by everyone clearly and immediately. In the present situation, sinful man needs grace and revelation, so moral and religious truths may be known by everyone with facility, with firm certainty, and with no admixture of error, unquote. And so what the catechism is saying is that people have an awareness, a kind of rudimentary awareness of a moral law but we're gonna bound to have disagreements for a variety of reasons. Some of them historical reasons. You have been, let's say, um, um, let's say you've been, you've been formed improperly. Let's say you grew up at, in the Soprano family. <laughs> you've ever watched the Sopranos, it's old, it's old now, but it was uh, a series on HBO about a mob family in New Jersey uh, called the Sopranos. So, uh, so people can be um, formed, um, habituated in ways that distorts their moral sensibilities, but they can't entirely eradicate it from themselves. So, so even in Sopranos, they did bad things. They, they murdered people, they stole things, but then there was also things like loyalty and honor among the family. Right? So you can't fully suppress it. So, so what the church is essentially saying is the moral law, to use a, maybe a bad me metaphor, it's like if when you're packing and you have too much stuff and every time you push the suitcase down, something comes out, right? So the, the moral law is kind of like that and you can't really rid yourself of it. Um, and so, so, so it's important to remember this because I think, um, there, there's a, sometimes an overconfidence on the part of, of Catholics in the use of reason to persuade people who may disagree with them. Um, that is, I mean, reason is something that's a gift and we should be able to give arguments to one another, but oftentimes our arguments in and of themselves uh, are ineffective because there are other things going on in, 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 in the way people are, right? So I don't think I've ever had this happen to you. I've had this happen where, where I, I read an argument and then 20 years later, I go back and read it and I think, why was I not convinced before? Now you are looking at that 20 years. So uh, most of you, so maybe like five years or three years or maybe a month, right? So I, you know, what's going on? I don't know sometimes, why is it that? Arguments that that seem unpersuasive. Probably there's a lot there's a lot going on in terms of you know your own uh, your own cultivation of your intellectual powers, your habits, your emotions. All these things are part of the puzzle, and that's something that Aquinas says in the Summa Theologica that that we are not simply we are rational animals. That's the way in which picking up from Aristotle he defines human beings. But we not only have a rational part, we also have an animal part. And that's where our emotions and passions come into play. And so for Aquinas, the moral life isn't simply you know, figuring out what morality is as part of it, but it's also making sure that you habituate in yourself 
practices so that, in fact, it's easy to be good. Okay? It's, being good is not simply knowing it, right? I mean, if, unless you're a saint, we, we, we've, we've all done things that are bad, even though we know they're bad. Right? So it's not simply an intellectual exercise. All right. Uh, fourth, the argument of disagreement leads to absurd consequences. So if moral relativism is correct, that there is no universal objective morality, then it is not wrong everywhere and always to rape another person, intentionally kill the innocent, torture children for fun, judge Mother Teresa as no better than Adolf Hitler, and abandon one's infant offspring to the elements if one finds them inconvenient. It also means that there can be neither moral progress, something like the eradication of chattel slavery, nor moral reformers, for progress and reformation presuppose a universal objective morality that societies and individuals may be moving toward. So this objection is just relying on the fact that there are consequences of believing relativism that just simply are undesirable. So this is, this happens, uh, I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. Somebody gives you a kind of rule. And the rule strikes you as wrong because you already know something else is true. So imagine this scenario. Imagine um, you, you're, you're married and you go to a marriage encounter. I don't know if you know what a marriage encounter is. I don't think they have them anymore. When I first got married, uh, I went to, it was like a retreat. Uh, in a place on a weekend where there was no access to football, uh, football, and I, you know, I had to write down my feelings in a blue book and give them to my wife, and she gave them to me, and we met with other couples. Uh, so imagine, let's say, a, there's a guy at the podium or a gal at the podium who is one of the, the leaders, one of the counselors, and they begin by saying, I'm gonna give you the 10 commandments of marriage. The first one is, a good wife washes her husband's socks by hand. Now, if you heard that, if you heard that, what, what, would, what would you, the first thing I would think about is that standard is wrong because my wife is good and she doesn't do that and will not do that. So the, the point is that sometimes it's okay to rely on what you seem to already know as a way to respond to what seems to be a kind of absurd consequence or an absurd claim. So what the fourth objection is doing is appealing to what seem to be counterintuitive consequences. Most people uh, will talk about things like moral progress, not only in terms of cultures and civilizations, but they're themselves, right? They'll say, you know, at one point in my life, I, you know, I was not very disciplined in studying or eating, and now I'm better at that, right? Or, I would sometimes jump to conclusions about other people, and now I understand that it's, it's probably better for me to withhold judgment until I know more facts, right? So people change over time, and we tend to think that's good, right, if they are changing in a particular direction. Well, that idea of moral progress only makes sense if, in fact, uh, there's such a thing as a moral end to which we're ordered. Now I want to move on um, to the argument from tolerance. So this is, again, somewhat dealing with moral diversity. Some people argue that because it is intolerant that one's moral views are right and others wrong, it follows that moral relativism 
the view that there is no one universal objective morality best establishes tolerance. Um, this was this kind of thinking was behind the once popular primary and secondary teaching technique known as values clarification. I don't know if any of you have heard of values clarification, but when I was in elementary school and in high school, this was like a big deal. It was like teaching kids uh, how to reason about moral matters, but saying that there are no correct answers. And so you would get, they would, be, they would have these like thought experiments like the lifeboat story, right? There's eight people on a lifeboat and only five can survive. And you're in charge of tossing off three people and they describe each one of the people, right? You know, one's a lawyer, one's a doctor, or one's, you know, so they're different. And the point is to sort of get people to talk about these things, right? I think that's a terrible way to teach ethics. <laughs> Because it begins with sort of these very difficult cases when most of the time ethics for, for most of us is just ordinary stuff like kindness, compassion, love, right? What does it mean to be a good father or mother or daughter or son or colleague, right? Those are sort of, those are, it's sort of like, who are we going to throw off a life for? That's something that virtually no one's ever going to face in their life, right? But we often face, more mundane things that have serious consequences for our personal relationships, right? Being kind to people, things like that. But it's, you know, it's a horrible way to teach ethics. <laughs> so, um, so the tolerance argument, um, there are several reasons to reject it. First, is just the observation that the moral relativist seems to be affirming at least one moral absolute or one moral absolute moral principle. Tolerance. But in that case, she's no longer a relativist. Right? I mean, there's, so I, a couple of years ago, when I mentioned earlier my book on abortion, Defending Life, uh, my publisher, Cambridge, this was still, the, it was before podcasts became a big deal, so it was more like radio shows. And so I, I was on a couple of college radio stations, and one, so Iowa State, um, which is, where's Iowa State? I know they're the cyclones, which is a really weird. I mean, think about that. It's having a, your mascot is a natural disaster. Right? It's like the Pittsburgh plague. <laughs> uh, so, so I was on the Iowa State radio station, AMS, AMS. And so Iowa State radio station, and the the host of the show takes call. I, I talk about my book. Uh, it's clear from the host doesn't agree with the book, but he's fair-minded and asks me difficult, but fair questions. Caller calls up and he says, the problem with you, Beckwith, is that you think you're right, that you're intolerant. You think you're right and everyone else is wrong. I asked him, am I wrong in thinking that way? He says, yes. I said, well, you're precisely in the same position as me. You think you're right and I'm wrong. How do we differ? It's just that what you've done rather cleverly is to simply disguise your dogma by calling it tolerance. But in fact, what you're doing is you think you're right, and that's fine. Make a case for your position. Explain why I'm mistaken. But the fact that I think I'm right and you're wrong in and of itself doesn't make me intolerant. In fact, and this brings us to the, I'm going to jump to the third objection and come back to the second. This actually, um, 
it, what follows from this is that the practice of tolerance then seems to be valuable because it's helping us better understand with those with whom we disagree, right? So when I get in an argument with one of my colleagues uh, at Baylor, and we have our disagreements, we're all friends, but like most philosophy departments, if you get two philosophers together, there's at least three arguments. And so uh, we disagree on a variety of issues and we'll argue with each other. And I consider those interactions to be extremely valuable. Not only because in some cases I've changed my mind, but I better understand my colleagues' views, right? That's, that's a good thing. It's, I, but that presupposes certain virtues that human beings can have, but virtues entail a kind of moral objectivism, right? So the idea here is that when the, when the, when the, when the gentleman on the radio program asked me the question, uh, or when he made a statement about me, uh, about um, because I thought I was right and everything wrong, that makes me intolerant, I think he's missing the whole point of uh, I can't be tolerant of people I think are correct. I agree with them. <laughs> but I'm only tolerant of people, and I don't mean tolerate in the sense of put off, I mean in the sense of being tolerant, that is to say, not using coercion or force or ridicule in order to silence somebody. Because I want to listen to them. They, they could very well have a point. And even if they don't have a point, um, I can still learn something very important about my own views. Right? So one of, the, one of the problems of not having those kind of robust discussions is that even if you think your views are right, it turns out it's like not exercising, you become weaker. So, so, the point, so the third point is that tolerance, in fact, presupposes certain values, certain virtues, but that in and of itself seems to be more like moral objectivism than moral relativism. Now I'm gonna to jump to the second objection. The second objection is that moral relativism need not lead to tolerance. So after all, in fact, I, I just, a year ago, I refereed a book, the Cornell University Press uh, sent me, asked me if I would review a manuscript that was submitted to the press, and it was a defense of, uh, it was called, the, Title of it, they actually, it's just, it just got published and I saw a review of it. Um, so um, it's a book uh, on oikophobia. That's the opposite of xenophobia. So, uh, and so it's basically an argument that uh, advanced Western civilization, advanced Western cultures tend to become oikophobic. That is to say, far more self critical about themselves. That ultimately is destructive. And so it's a kind of defense of a form of nationalism. I, I didn't agree with the book. I, I, I offered a lot of criticisms of it. And I, I nevertheless thought it should be published because I think someone like that, those views should be out there for people to either criticize uh, or defend. Uh, but one of the things that stood out about the book, and this is where I was, highly, I was really highly critical, the author was a moral relativist. And so basically his argument was, I don't believe that there is any objective morality, but I think I love my culture, and for that reason, I think it's okay 
for me and my civilization to treat other people badly for the sake of my civilization. In other words, his relativism wind up leading him to the conclusion that it was okay to treat others badly. In other words, to the opposite of tolerance. So sometimes, there's no assurance that if someone's a relativist, that's necessarily gonna entail tolerance, right? So this is a perfect example. So I forget what the new title of the book is, but I just read a review of the book and I was, um, the guy that reviewed it, David Goldman, who I don't, I don't know well, uh, really was a scathing reviewer. Um, and I, I was kind of happy to see that, <laughs> uh, in the sense that I think it was a fair critique of, of the book. Uh, but, it, but again, it's, as an academic, uh, as academic, academics typically get in, invited by publishers to review manuscripts, and I oftentimes will get manuscripts of, from, from authors that I don't agree with. And one of the things that uh, I consider a, a virtue is, to, is the, to look at the manuscript, and, and even if I disagree with it, if I think it's well done, recommend its publication. I don't look, I don't look at it as an opportunity for me to be um, a gatekeeper so that bad ideas don't get published. Right? No, sometimes, even if I think it's a bad idea, if it's argued for in a respectable way, then it's debated. So, All right. So let me just say a few things, um, kind of to wrap up and open the floor for questions. Uh, a little bit about Thomas Aquinas and his insights uh, on moral, uh, on politics and, and moral relativism. So Aquinas defends this idea uh, in the Summa Theologica, uh, does it elsewhere as well, but primarily in a section called the Treatise on Law, which is in the uh, the first part of the second part of the Summa, in questions 90 through 107. And uh, in, he argues for something called the natural law. He argues that there are certain goods to which human beings are ordered, and that because we're rational animals, that is, so we have reason, unlike other creatures, we can actually have concepts about what is good for us, and we have a free will that we can exercise to attain those goods. And he lists them from things like, um, um, we have a, a natural inclination to pursue good. All that means is that we have a natural inclination to do things that we think in, enhances our being, even if we're wrong, right? So people can, if someone, let's say, were an alcoholic, that's bad, but they are doing it for a reason that seems to be good, maybe to eradicate uh, loneliness or something like that. So Aquinas develops this idea of, of natural law, and uh, he brings up, he talks about other goods as well. But one of the things he does address is the question of what, what about disagreement? And so one of the things that he says is that um, if you look at, in fact, he singles out the Germans uh, for some reason. He says, you know, in the, in, among the Germans, and Pierre is talking about the Germanic tribes uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, among the Germans, stealing is considered to be okay. What about that? And he says, well, it's because that's, you know, they, they've been sort of habituated to think that way, but they can't entirely 
suppress a natural law because they fax the love their children. Or they, they, you know, all these other things come out in other ways. Um, some people have been critical of Aquinas because, in fact, uh, the German Germanic tribes did not think that stealing was okay between them. Right? It was just sort of other other uh, civilizations and cultures they could take from. Something else that um, that I think it's important to recognize that I think Aquinas' insights uh, can be illuminating here. If you think, for example, of the past 70, 80 years or so and the number of, of um, ways in which we talk about human rights and unjust laws, think, for example, the, Uni the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail, these documents presuppose these sorts of goods. And what Aquinas would say is that that's, that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, you're gonna find this, these goods everywhere. In fact, when people, let's say, disagree with the idea of rights, and there is a, academics that do, they often appeal to some moral notions. In fact, the same moral notions that defenders of rights think that they are defending by uh, making their case. So, uh, two uh, so no, one more, two examples here. One I've already, I brought up um, is the, um, the principle is morally wrong to kill another person without justification. So all societies prohibit homicide, but all carve out exemptions, but only do so by justifying them. And so we looked at the issue of abortion. Right there, you have people making arguments for why the fetus is a person or not, and it's not innocent. On the other hand, even uh, within our criminal law, we have exceptions, right? So you, if, in self, you can, in self-defense, kill somebody. Obviously, you, you can only do enough. You can only do what is adequate to ward off uh, an attack. You can't, let's say, if somebody runs away, you can't run after them and, and kill them, right? So, uh, but these exemptions are carved out. Why? Because there's a sense that there are other goods at stake, right? And so a person has a right to defend themselves. Um, another example, it is morally wrong to intentionally tell a falsehood to someone who's entitled to the truth. Lying, right? So we think lying is wrong, but we sometimes come up with cases we think that are exceptional, right? So when Rahab lied uh, to protect uh, the Hebrew spies right, in the Old Testament, or in espionage or wartime, uh, people would, in fact, not tell the truth to the enemy. In fact, if you if you see military people, I don't know if you have ROTC here on campus at Yale. We have ROTC at Baylor, and I've had a, a couple of students this semester who are both ROTC sometimes come to class in camouflage. Now I still see them. You know that'd be funny if like, they had seat camouflage, right? Uh, and you know. Camouflage is essentially saying, I'm a plant, right? It's called camouflage, right? You're actually being deceived. You're deceiving, right? Does it really work? I don't, I don't really know. Maybe it works in certain environments. The point is that, that we have sort of a general moral intuition that lying is wrong, but we do carve out exceptions and we either say it's not really lying or we say that, that the rules against lying do have exceptions. But the point is the same moral goods are involved. So, in conclusion, I think moral relativists typically have their hearts in the right place. 
They rightly recognize differences of moral beliefs and practices between individuals and across cultures, while at the same time wanting to advance the cause of tolerance and understanding. But as we have seen, despite their good motives, this view, the view they hold, moral relativism has many significant weaknesses. Thank you. questions. Uh, so it is, I talked for about 45, 50 minutes, so I don't, maybe 15 minutes or so, or yeah, five minutes, I don't know how, 15, yeah. 10 or 15 minutes, yeah. Yes. Thank you for your lecture. My question is, so if we can assume that there are objective norms, um, the problem of moral disagreement still exists. Yeah. And so, is the only way to settle this, because if we apply morals, is the only way to settle this resulting in a power struggle, the strongest side wins? Because it seems that if we hold certain, if a certain group says these moral objectives are true no matter what, and another group says the same thing, then reason doesn't seem to work to say which side is better. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great observation. I, I think this is why we have developed institutions in order to make it at least more likely that we don't exercise power, right? So ideally universities should be places like that, right? Where people can debate issues and disagree with each other. That doesn't always happen, right? You, you know, you hear about schools all the time. You know, there was actually apparently an incident here at the law school in February at, at Yale. Uh, so yeah, so I think, we, we try to develop institutions. Um, you know, in every country is different, but in, in, in the US we have, you know, lawmaking entities that uh, at least in principle allow citizens to make their cases, right? So there, 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 there's, there's no easy answer, right? I mean, I, I, think, uh, uh, I think persuasion does matter, right? So, um, I'm not sure that, uh, and here I think I've changed, I've changed my mind a little bit. Uh, you know, as a philosopher, I, I'd like to think that everything is just a matter of arguments. But I do think that um, there are other things going on when people are persuaded or change their minds. I don't think, if, if any of you familiar with the work of Jonathan Haidt, a moral psychologist at NYU, um, Haidt has this book called The Righteous Mind. Uh, it's called why, why people disagree on moral issues and moral religious issues or political religious issues. And one of the things, he, one of the points he makes is that uh, we tend to be moved more initially by emotion and then we try to find our reasons later. And that's, that's uh, probably true. Uh, and I think what we have to, I think you have to inculcate in people, and it's like with any sort of discipline, if you don't master that when you're young, it's gonna be more difficult to understand others. So I think it's a, it's a question, sort of a practical question of, of how, um, you know, how, how you teach young people. Um, do you, uh, on the other hand though, there are, seems to be, uh, you know, even the idea that we can debate each other, for some people it's controversial. You should never debate. Right, so you know, I don't know. I don't really have a. There's really no solution. There's no definitive solution. My burden is just to show why relativism, the disagreement, 
uh, not to give the social answer. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that uh, we underestimate the importance of institutions in shaping people. Um, so when I was, I'll give, tell you one story, I see it with other hands. Just when I was a little kid, my dad had a teacher. I went to a, um, went to a Catholic elementary school in Las Vegas called St. Viars. I had a teacher, Mrs. Newman, who I really grew to like, but initially I didn't like her. Because sometimes she said things in class that really bugged me. And so my, I went to my parents, I was in fifth grade, and I told my dad, and he said, he said, you know, Francis, Frank, that's what he called Francis, I was a kid, I didn't want to call Francis, Frank is, uh, so uh, he said, Frank, you've got to understand that in order to live in a free country, you need to listen to people you don't agree with. And I just stuck with me ever since, and I think it affected the way I, I think about today as well. Uh, but if you don't inculcate that in people, um, then they will see it just as a matter of power. Yes? My question, this is, by the way, Chris, thank you for your talk. Oh, I really enjoyed it. But I just want to ask, if there are objective morals, where do they come from, and can they come from anywhere except God? Yeah. Because they can't be from like popular belief yeah. of what morals are if they are objective. So, what would the metaphysical foundation be, yeah. and can we know it? Yeah. Good question. That's another lecture, actually. You can see lecture that I have given on on the question of of the source of morality. Uh, I think if you if you let's say let's say you would I ask the question, what is morality? So if I ask, for example, what is a chair? Right? You can describe it and say it's made out of some material. So if I say, well, what is morality? So you can say that, I mean, you say that, for example, morality is uh, kind of an immaterial uh, form of, that um, it's an imma something, immaterial cognitive content that has a kind of incumbency to it in the sense that once you realize it, you, you feel sort of moved to either obey it or disobey it. And then if you disobey it, you suffer a kind of guilt. So suppose you were to define morality that way. That's a, that's a real quick, quick way of doing it. Then, you, then I think the question is, well, what is, where did it come from? And so I make the argument that I think there's only a couple of different options. So one option is the kind of Kind of Darwinian account, right? Morality is the, you know, uh, this is an account defended by Michael Lewis and Neil Wilson. And a very famous article that appeared, I think, in the new, uh, I think, Science uh, or Nature magazine in the, in the mid 80s. And they argue that the idea that we believe that there's a moral law is a kind of trick that nature plays on us so that we could live in community and perpetuate the species. Another is you can kind of give a kind of um, social contract account, right? You can say, um, you know, whatever morality is, it's what rules we would have come up with at the beginning so that we don't kill each other. Uh, I think those, I think both the Darwinian account and the social, uh, uh, or you can also give, a, obviously, a Kantian account, right? Um, there's a categorical imperative. Uh, you could give a kind of utilitarian account, but I think I, I think that the, the theistic account best makes sense of it because of the law-like nature of it. That is, uh, if you think 
um, if you think of, of, of morality, uh, think for example of, let's say you're walking down the streets of New Haven and, you, and, and on the ground is a book that says the revised statutes of the state of Connecticut. How would you know to obey? Well, how would you know? Well, you have to find out whether in fact it was a law or a set of laws that had been passed by a legislature and signed by the governor. I, I just suspect that's how they do it in Connecticut, like they do it in Texas. Um, and that means that the law has to kind of have an authority behind it. So I do think, I mean, this is, a, again, another lecture, for, but uh, I do think you know, this is a short version of it. Uh, I think that you, you um, the law-like nature of morality I, I think implies a kind of lawgiver. And, and there's a sense of duty that we have uh, that even if we don't ever, let's say we do something wicked and nobody ever finds out, there's this kind of sense of guilt and in a sense to use a, um, uh, from, a uh, from an old movie, uh, uh, the sense the eyes of God are looking down upon. So, yeah, so I do think that the theistic account is the, um, the best. Again, it's not a, uh, I can come back and do that lecture too. So, yes, yeah. Yeah, I had a question about your critique of the argument for disagreement. Yeah. Um, I've heard it less often articulated that um, there is moral disagreement, therefore morality is, is relative. But rather, I've seen disagreement being used as evidence of the impossibility of knowing an objective moral standard if such a thing exists. Yeah. Um, I think to some extent it seems um, not particularly meaningful, even if you were to, to um, convince everyone that you know, an objective moral standard exists, um, that sort of distinction doesn't seem that meaningful unless you can also convince them that they have some knowledge of what that standard might be. Yeah. And I've heard it articulated that you know, the fact that Christianity, that Islam, that Hinduism have these different claims to, to knowledge of the objective moral standard seems to be evidence that um, that people have these different standards and that they're not as universal as one might think. Yeah. So that's why part of it, I, I think, I think uh, so this is why the response to the argument for disagreement, I, I, I appeal to these, what I think are common goods. In it. So, uh, so this, yeah, so uh, I think that in terms of what what we should expect from moral reasoning. Here I'm going to quote Aristotle. Aristotle says, we shouldn't expect from moral reasoning what we get in scientific reasoning. So I think this is sort of the best we can, we can do when it comes to morality. We can sort of appeal to what seems to be a kind of knowledge which is somewhat analogous to sense experience, right? I mean, um, so sense experience is generally reliable, right? But you could have, let's say, half a dozen people look at the same event and come up with a slightly different narrative, right? Or even contradictory accounts. So I do, so what I'm trying to do is, 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 is to show the, the based on the argument, or responding to the argument that, that our moral reflections kind of function similarly like our, our sense, our, our senses do. It's not quite analogous, um, uh, and that, uh, 
uh, when we when we do have disagreements over morality, uh, we're able to actually argue with each other. And the reason why we can argue is because there is, at some point, a shared vocabulary. But that doesn't mean there couldn't be truly wicked individuals and civilizations. Um, there's a famous, um, it's not really an article, it's an appendix in the back of a book by uh, Ron Fuller. Ron Fuller was a great legal scholar who taught for years at Harvard. Uh, his book is called Morality of Law, and he has this appendix in the back of the book uh, called The Problem of the Grudge and Horror, and it's a, it, it's a kind of fictionalized version of what happened after the Second World War. After the Allied nations defeated the Axis powers, there was this problem. The problem had to do with what do we do with all these, not only the sort of obvious war criminals, but what about the ordinary German citizens that would inform on their neighbors because of grudges? Uh, and so the problem had to do with the fact that they were not disobeying the law. They were actually, what they were doing was consistent with the law that Hitler had put down. Uh, and so what do you do, right? So if you say, well, we have to create new law to go after them, well, then you have the problem of post facto law, which seems to be immoral. Um, or if you appeal to something like kind of the natural law, the law of other law, and that raises other problems, like uh, you know, what jurisdiction do, does the Nuremberg trials have, or the courts in Nuremberg, what nation do they belong? Right, so, so the whole problem, so he brings up like five different scenarios how to deal with the grudge informer. The point, though, is that the reason why it's such a difficult problem is that the Nazi civilization was so damn wicked that it was, it's, it was, everyone recognized the immorality of what happened. The problem was justifying punishment for people who actually did not act inconsistently with the law. I mean, there was a famous case of a woman who caught her husband committing adultery, and then he, she had remembered that he had said something negative about Hitler, and she went to the Gestapo and reported him, and he was executed. And so she got payback, so to speak. And so there are lots of cases like that. One more, yeah, yes, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask a question. It's actually connected to the question John the last two um, responses and questions. So you mentioned that it is somewhat mistaken to expect, uh, I mean, the same result from social science or like behavioral science or philosophy. Um, uh, the, I mean, compared to the expectations we have from natural or precise sciences, I would call them. So why can't we then um, excuse the exceptions of some concepts like moral relativism. I mean, isn't this criteria of having no exceptions at all is even more strict than the way applied to natural sciences? So, are you saying that the moral objectivism has no exceptions, or? Um, um, what I'm saying is that, it, let's say physics or math, one law applies to almost everything, but there are some few exceptions, right? And we expect from, philosophy or like moral science to be okay. even more with exceptions, yes. but now we are critiquing it very strictly, like 
social uh, moral relativism, for example, um, presupposes that tolerance is objective. Yeah. So can we, I mean, is that the case that it rejects all commonalities? I mean, uh, relativism? Yeah. So the, a rel depending on the kind of relativist. So if you, if you talk to certain, certain relativists would say that commonality in and of itself uh, is not evidence for objective morality. So it just happens to be by coincidence that several different cultures you know, happen to have similar moral rules. But someone like Aquinas or uh, most recently C.S. Lewis in the first five chapters of Mere Christianity, he brings out the fact that you have these, these commonalities are evidence <coughs> of a kind of shared basis in or shared human goods that just come out differently given different circumstances. So I don't know if that, that's really addressing what you're... Yeah, I, I just... I mean, the, the root of the question was that is there, uh, let's say, a less extreme version of, of moral relativism? Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, you could. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good, it's a good question. Um, I suppose you know, I'm trying to put my if, if I were if I were defending that view. See, because I think no matter if, if let's say I had a. a, a, a a kind of a, a friendlier form of relativism that um, that acknowledges these disagreements, but at the same time has no problem with the commonalities. To me, that just—I I don't know how that differs from more some form of moral objectivism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't. I yeah. yeah. So yeah. okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, so I, I do accept that. property, 
and I move your your your, your flower bed or, or your you know or kill your goat or something by accident and so you say you owe me for that and I'll say take it from me <laughs> and and so so unless there's a, a third party we can go to to sort of so you need something else something like what what, what Hart calls rule uh, secondary rules. Uh, so you need rules of recognition, that is rules about how you figure out what, what the rules are. And secondly, you need some sort of judicial body to figure out like what to do with conflict. So I don't know, but in terms of like blameworthiness, I mean there are cases where um, people can be, I think, um, I you know, people can be so corrupted that they are, are less blameworthy than let's say somebody who is Fully aware of a moral wrong. I mean, suppose supposing somebody grew up in a you know a family like the Sopranos, you know, they just it doesn't occur to them there's anything necessarily wrong with, with, with uh, um, you know, stealing merchandise or something like that. So. All right, I know I saw some other hands. To, uh, look, just one more, and then is that okay? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So uh, this one mentioned that there's. I got that. Right, I'm sorry. There are like certain moral principles or inclinations or situations that people have like across all different kinds of societies. But there's also like inclinations to do the morally wrong thing, like there's violence in all these societies. So if both of these are kind of based on like intuition, like doesn't there need to be some kind of tiebreaker like reason? Yeah. Great, great question. Something actually that I don't know if you've ever seen C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. So the first five chapters, it's, it's chapter one in short, so I, I assigned this in my Deadly Moral Problems class. And so something he deals with is he says that, and so I'm going to give you Lewis's answer. So Lewis's answer is that um, you need he, he, that, that you need a kind of law above the law. That is to say that uh, if, you, if you say that um, morality is merely instinct, uh, and his observation, he brings up this observation, we have these contrary instincts, right? So you could have something like, let's say we, um, let's say you have a case where a, um, a, a parent, you know, truly loves their child, uh, and their child, let's say, has committed a heinous crime, and they are obligated under law to turn them in. So you have these sort of, you have the instinct of paternal and maternal love, and then the you know, the instinct to obey the law. And, and what Lewis says is that what the moral law is, it's the ability to make the judgment to, in this case, to turn your child in. Um, so one of the things, again, let me give you Aquinas's, I think it's Aquinas's answer. Aquinas, when he talks about inclinations, he's, it's not the same as instincts. It's so I have an inclination to live, right? So if 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 let's say uh, you hear of let's say let's say you read in the newspaper of somebody having taken their life, a tragedy, and what is the first question that somebody asks? The first question is usually why did they do it? But if you see somebody alive, you don't ask why are they doing it. Right, because you already have to. So, so, uh, so for for Aquinas, inclinations are sort of inclinations 
to, to, the, to goods that, we, uh, that make us or perfect us in some way. Um, but he also recognizes that we also have emotions. We have passions, and those passions can make us angry. They can, uh, they can uh, draw us to love. They can uh, uh, make us fearful. And the moral life ultimately comes down to the virtues, because the virtues for Aquinas, like Aristotle, are the mastering of those passions. So any other, um, I guess that's it. So yeah, <laughs> you can stick around. Yeah, uh, thank, I'm going to stick around for a few minutes. I've got my parking expires in uh, <laughs> uh, 19 minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you.